Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major and this episode we're continuing with John Caldwell's Desperate Voyage and we're on chapter 15. Chapter 15 Devilfish The flat green island nearby to starboard was Nukahiva. Back on the starboard quarter was the graying dome of Uahuka, and the distantly visible on the port beam was Uapuo. Nukahiva is the main island and port of entry for the French-governed Marchese Islands. I stood about two miles south of Sail Rock on her southeast point. The wind and sea-battered rock was white with the foam of relentless rollers advancing before the seasonal trades. Behind it, and blending with it, was Cape Martin. On Lukahiva's southern shore, you find three excellent harbours, Comptroller Bay, Tauhai Bay, and Tauoa Bay. I idled along the coast at a wistful distance and peered into each inviting anchorage. In my lap lay spread the chart of the island. I explored each part I passed. I was nearly tempted to steer into one of them. Tauhai from the sea is dark green, seamed with cool valleys and topped by a benevolent cloud, a valley as soothing as fresh linen. But I wasn't on a sightseeing trip. I had no visa and I had no clearance papers for the port. My exchequer was down to $20 and I had no way of knowing if I did go in if I had enough money to get out. But most of all, I couldn't afford the time. Hurricane weather would be setting in on the Tasman Sea in less than six weeks and I had to be in Sydney before then. It meant hard sailing. There were more than 4,000 miles of sea yet to cross. Furthermore, Pagan was in need of nothing. Food I had aplenty and there was three months water supply on board. Morale of passengers, crew and escort was high, especially so since I was nearing 145 degrees west longitude, the halfway mark to Sydney. Flotsam and Jetsam were thriving on the life. Stowaway, though I seldom saw him, was in fine fettle. Old Death and his mob, despite the fact that they had lost three of their number on the traverse, didn't appear to be affected by 3,000 miles of day and night swimming at five knots. The whole gang was with me to a man. Sail on, they said. So I glided along the southern extremity of the famous island that has figured so strongly in romantic literature and the lives of adventurous men in the South Seas. Later the same day, I wished I had gone into one of the quiet embayments. The mainsail halyard suddenly parted, chafed through at the peat block, and I found myself with the nastiest repair job known to the seamen, which is to say, scaling the mast to tie a splice into the becket. Throughout the voyage, I had dreaded the onset of such a task. To this end, I had replaced all halyards before leaving Galapagos, hoping they would last out the voyage to Sydney. The hard usage of the trades had worn the weak sisal rope through where it rode in the block. Such a repair on the smooth waters of a basin is one thing, but in the unceasing seaway of the southeast trades it is decidedly another. I had got no further than the hounds before I realised that what I was doing was impossible in the nude. I slid back down the swaying pole, minus a few minor chunks of flesh and smarting where I had met the mast and shrouds, I donned trousers and shirt and commenced the exhausting climb again. 
This time I got well into the rigging before I encountered serious difficulties. Hanging on was a super energetic job. I was puffing before I reached the first set of hounds. I had both legs and one arm locked tightly about the mast. With my free hand, I cut away the old halyard at the becket and barely managed to reeve the new line into the block when I became aware that no matter how desperately I clung, I was being torn away from my grip. I pulled the line through the sheave. My strength, in the maximum effort demanded to clutch the lurching spar, was deserting fast. I could hang on, I knew, only a few seconds at most. My holds were slipping. I was going. I expected I would fall from the swinging spar and crash on the deck. The next land, downwind, was hundreds of miles. It would be impossible in that sea to pass the line through the main peak block and splice it then to the becket on the topmost block. I could only hope to get safely out of the mess I got myself into. I made a movement to glide to deck 35 feet below. My leg unwound from its hold and was flung sharply away from the mast. I was thrown out of balance. My other leg followed. I was tossed against the shrouds and against the mast. I could neither hold on nor work my way down without plummeting to the deck. Below me, Pagan looked like a canoe. Her headsails were bellied to the wind. Each roller that passed under her counter pitched her steeply and rolled her up to the rail. Up here, I was looking down on first one side of Pagan's decks and then the other. Unable to hold on longer, I cast loose and kicked away as best I could. I fell as little boys fall from trees, completely out of control, legs kicking, arms flying, but I landed on the hard water. How it happened, I don't know. Until the moment I sucked water into my lungs, I thought I had struck the rail. I clambered on deck and lay atop the deckhouse, gasping for breath. It was evident I couldn't splice the halyard into the becket. I gave up the use of a peak block altogether and used the single purchase with one block. When I was rested, I hooked the sail on and pulled it up. It was harder to handle, but it worked. Pagan was under full sail and showing her heels to the Marchese's. Noon had gone. The islands were still in sight. I was resting and smarting from my labours on the mast. Pagan was doing her work nicely. She was shaping slightly south of west. The afternoon was passing like any other, except that I was enervated from the morning's exertions. I was sitting in the cockpit with the kittens purring their pleasant way, asleep in my lap. Slightly abaft the beam and about a hundred yards out the sea surface rippled, and then it rippled again. I stood up and watched, expecting to see a school of porpoise. The splashes and eddies grew near. Then, breaking water nearby and gliding smoothly beneath the keel, came a giant devilfish. He approached Pagan as though he hadn't seen her, and when he passed, he turned and slipped deliberately back, coming close enough to touch the planking, eyeing me with black protruding eyes. His head was the end part of a slightly humped and heavy body, his mouth was a black hole, and either side of it were short, arm-like growths that he used, I suppose, to cram his victims into his black maw. The wide, meaty wings moved with rippling motions, thrusting the tons of his weight along by the merest movements. Trailing behind him, like a lifeline, was a short, thin tail. The sea bat moves in utter disdain of whatever passes near him, he is remorseless in his power, confident as a peacock and more arrogant than a shark. 
I wondered as I watched him coast along if I dared challenge him. And I did dare, because I knew that if I was careful, the advantage was mine. With the experience I had gained from the shark near the Perlas, I felt I could outpoint his great weight and strength. It was simply a matter of hooking him and letting him play himself out. Then I could pull him in close to the side and examine him at close quarters. This was another thing I had often dreamed of doing from merchant ships. The size of him would necessitate a heavy line. The lifeline from the main sheet traveller would do. I pulled it in and bent it to 20 feet of steel wire. I worked hastily, keeping my eyes on the huge fish as he boldly slithered beneath the keel and treaded water on the port quarter. On the end of the wire, I spliced my two heavy shark hooks and baited them with a large bluefish I had caught in the morning. This tidbit I dropped practically in the big brute's lap as he sauntered by. He deployed himself for a moment to consider it, then, with a great thrust of his bat-like wings, fell on it in a rush. At the same moment, and with the same motion with which he took the lure, he plunged. I watched the line go down and come taut with such violence that the stern was pooped and ran over three inches of water. I watched the quiver of Pagan's stern and the stress against the line. I was ready with my knife to cut it away at the traveller if the strain against it threatened destruction. My idea in hooking him was that the short line with Pagan's heaviness at the end would all the sooner wear him down. I was eager to finish him off and drag him to the stern where I could hack his jawbone out and add it to the sharks for Mary to see. The line slacked for a moment, then tautened to the port side with a force that veered Pagan three points off course. I went sprawling into the cockpit. By main force, my boat had been stopped in her fix. She was making no headway. She merely strained where she sat. Her stern was being pulled around till the wind was threatening to jibe the sail. I bounced to my feet with a decision to cut the line. Pagan was being jerked about at will. I stepped out of the cockpit, wondering what next. As though a mule had kicked me between the shoulders, I went tossing headlong onto the lazarette. Pagan's decks trembled as she was jerked off course. The terror of thought gripped me. My body went cold. Everything stopped. I scrambled to the stern, groping with my knife. I heard the splintering of wood. I looked up to see the traveller being ripped away on the port side. It was made fast to both deck and rail by heavy screws, and yet it went as though it were tacked on. It twisted upward at a grotesque angle and bent farther as the line tightened. The strain was beginning to splinter it loose from the starboard rail. I rushed to cut away the line. Something swooshed over my head. Pagan shivered mightily as she jibed and rounded up on the other tack. She was half a circle off course. I looked at the sea and saw the devilfish was off the starboard quarter. He was on the surface and in his rage he was lathering the sea to a froth. His great wingtips were cleaving the surface, thrashing like a wounded bird. Pagan was bouncing like a rowboat in a bad chop. The full weight of pull was now on the traveller where it connected to the starboard rail. It was now or never. I touched the taut line with the knife blade. The line snapped, unravelled and flew at me. There was only a swirl on the sloping wall of an unrolling wave where the devilfish had sounded into the tippled depths. Pagan, free of the restraint, quickly picked up speed. I dropped the main immediately and pitched in to repair the twisted traveller and the splintered rail. What a day it had been. As soon as the repairs were made, I was glad to get sail on, 
lash the tiller a lee and hit the sack, too tired to enter the day's events in the log. The next afternoon, Flotsam and Jetsam added a merry note to what had been a dull day. This was one of the few days that there hadn't been a flying fish on deck for them. Also, my trawling had been to no avail. My potluck meals had netted me a can of spinach for breakfast and pineapple juice with a can of corn for lunch, not a suitable substitute for catnip. By one in the afternoon, I still hadn't caught them a fish. I was on deck pondering just what to do in such a weighty predicament. A rule of the sea reads that one's sailors should eat sufficiently. Besides, morale demanded it. My crew was on the verge of mutiny. I heard a growling and a scuffling unlike anything my charges had ever engaged in before. I jumped through the companionway whence came the fracas. There, under the forepeak, in a deathly encounter, grappled flotsam and jetsam, claw and fang into our passenger stowaway. Stowaway heaved with kickings and twistings, my young lions with claws bared and teeth dripping, jock-eyed for better bite-holds. Taking each of my grim starvelings by the tail, I spread them from the would-be feast. Stowaway, bruised and minus a few patches of fur, darted to his refuge. Flotsam and Jetsam became highly indignant that they had been denied the passenger as fresh rations and slunk into the forepeak to continue the toothsome search. I could feel their hurts deeply and I wanted to do right by them, so I searched among my stores of unlabeled cans for sign of a tin of fish. The cans in the lockers and in the icebox, some twenty cans in number, gave no hint that they contained fish. According to my stores list, I had 86 cans of food stored beneath the starboard bunk. To this point, I had eaten 139 of my original 248 tins of food. When I looked, I saw a sight to set one's nerves on edge. Something was wrong. I could tell it instantly. I had known all along that it was damp in the tight space beneath the bunk, but I had no idea that in so short a time the dampness would infiltrate into the cans. I examined each swollen, seeping tin and found all of them puffed with gas and fermented soppy liquid. Not one of the whole storage was eatable. They had putrefied to a can. Almost I decided to put about and tried to gain back against sea and current to the Marchese's. Quickly I checked through the remainder of my stores. Thus far on the trip I had devoured over half my staples. The ham, bacon, salt pork, sugar, cornmeal, peaches, prunes and cheese were gone. Of the remaining staples, oatmeal, rice, oleomargarine, hominy, grits, flour, jam and honey, there was anywhere from one-fourth to three-quarters of a jug of each left. I counted 150 sea biscuits, a quart of dried apples, a gallon can of ketchup, a quart of peanut butter, plenty of tea and coffee and 23 cans of food. A check on my water supply showed just under 50 gallons aboard. Since the bulk of my food stores had been centred in the canned goods, the loss suffered under the bunk had hurt. However, on paper, I shortly estimated that it was possible to extract 107 meals from the remaining supplies. I also estimated that with 40 days of hard sailing, I could finish off the trip to Sydney. It had to be this way. In only a month, hurricane weather was due. This meant that I must ration my food, cut down to two meals a day, 
and eat a little less at mealtime than I was accustomed to. It was that, or try to win back to the Marchese's and suffer the possibility of holing up over the hurricane season. There wasn't time to turn back. I voted to go it to Sydney in one hard sail. I was due to pass Caroline Island, a lonely volcanic and coral atoll in a few days. My wicked intuition that all was well urged me to press on to the little isle, to stop long enough for coconuts as an addition to my larder. It was about this time that I began to sense a subtle change in the weather pattern. I didn't worry about it because there was little effect on my timetable, but I certainly didn't like the looks of these growing changes. They argued that I speed on, that I crowd my boats to the maximum, that I get to Sydney as quickly as possible. Overhead were split-tailed tropical birds, out forward shoals of flying fish flitted briefly, and in the wake were large sharks, all sure signs of land. On the morning of August 29th, the loom of land raised across the bows, right where it should be. With the sun's rising, I made the land, Caroline Island, to be seven miles distant and shaped a course slightly north of South Island. On the starboard bow were a number of low mounds washed heavily by the sea. According to the sailing directions, South Island is the main point in this tiny archipelago. There are supposed to be a few natives, a lot of fish around, and water ashore. A US solar eclipse party had been here in 1883, it said. I sailed Pagan on a bow line for the readiest approach to the anchorage. I wanted to get done what I could before dark so I could be on my way. I pointed up into the southwest corner of the weirdly shaped island. I donned my army fatigues and shirt, pulled on shoes and socks, the first since the perlas, combed the salt out of my beard and hair, and took the tiller. Not mentioned in the sailing directions is an active volcano, trailing a flow of smoke like a passing steamer. I kept the smoky crest on the bowsprit and dropped my homemade anchor in front of the reef-bound harbour. It took an uncertain hold and occasionally slipped. I found I had to keep my jib and staysail backing and filling to maintain a hold. Pagan rode easily, lying close under the land, catching the breeze falling from the summit. Across the reef and over the placid lagoon, I could see the shoreline was planted to coconut trees, the rest was dark green jungle, veering up into the heights. Soon a sail put out from what appeared to be a small wharf. It glided over the protected bay and bounced across the thundering reef and closed in. Its occupants, smiling gleefully, I saluted them in as friendly a style as possible and encouraged them to moor their outrigger to my halyards. At the helm was an old man, accompanied by his aged wife, two young men, a young woman, and two devilish-looking boys and a girl. They were dark-skinned, and I'm sure they were apple-cheeked under their burnt faces. They were more Polynesian type of people, tall, brown-skinned, with long straight hair, Caucasian-looking, very different from the peoples I had seen further west during the war. They didn't know how to take me, though they smiled and held back. I motioned them aboard in as friendly and disarming a manner as possible, an indicated seating room on the cabin and rail. I saluted each barefoot visitor with a friendly, informal handshake and nod as he stepped aboard. The men were clad in loose-fitting lava-lavas 
tied at the waist and extending to the knees. The two little boys were naked. All the women were robed with lava lavas which began at the chest. The clothes of all were worn-looking. They showed holes and ragged edges. I had the feeling that even these had been put on for this special occasion. Isolation showed in their faces. The old man styled himself promptly as chief. He indicated my boat with a sweep of his gnarled hand and smiled admiringly. He spoke in a type of French unlike anything I had heard in Algiers or Quebec during the war. We quickly contrived a sort of bêche de mer centred around key words such as boat, sea, wife, man, you, me, come, go, Australia, America, and so on. He pointed out his wife, his sons, and grandchildren. The youngsters stood somewhat in awe of me, the first white man they had seen. My blonde, bushy beard, growing since Panama and by now some three inches long, alarmed them. My hair by now had cropped out over my ears and was extending toward my shoulders and was down to my eyes in front. I tried to act in such a way as to show them that I was no different from other men. The chief glanced below decks. Seeing no one, he inquired after my crew. It was difficult to explain that I was alone and the reasons for it. Somehow I put the story across and the men especially became quite impressed. But I'm sure they didn't believe that it was all for Mary. In their youth, the chief and his wife had lived in Papit, the main anchorage at Tahiti. The whole group had been isolated, he explained, since the beginning of the war. When I told him that the war was ended, all nodded agreeably and looked pleased, but I am sure they had no idea of who was fighting. They fitted their mood to mine and reacted as I did. If I was amused, they were amused. If I listened very gravely to something the chief said, they in turn pondered it profoundly. The younger men around my age, I would judge, were keen about pagan. They were tall, square-jawed with lean biceps and a spot of curled hair on their wide chests. They fingered the turnbuckles at the shrouds and the manila halyards approvingly. I brought my sextant, compass and pocket watch out. The watch fascinated them. The whole group drew in a close circle and emitted oohs and ahs when I unscrewed the back of the watch and displayed the intricate workings. As I gained their confidence, much jollity ensued. Even the youngsters warmed up to me. A great happiness sprung among us all, and I forgot about my shortage of food and brought out nine unlabeled cans. As I gouged them open with the now rusted can opener, amazed exclamations went around. The old chief explained proudly, however, that many times before he had dined from tins. We enjoyed our snack, taken from the open can with our fingers. I ate the can of spinach that was opened because I was afraid their tastes might not appreciate it. They smacked feelingly over corn and beans, peaches and carrots, beets and applesauce, tomato soup and asparagus. Much dipping of fingers in various cans went on. While we ate, I tried to explain the reason for my rustic anchor, which one of the men had spotted in the shallow, ice-clear water. It was difficult to tie up the modern conveniences of my craft with its incongruous ground tackle. At this point, a near riot occurred. The two boys, shuddering and jabbering, bolted from the cockpit and stumbled against the rail, falling onto the outrigger. The little girl and the young woman leaped across the row of legs to the foredeck, shrieking distractedly. Then, 
from out of the hatchway into the cockpit sauntered Flotsam and Jetsam, padding sleepily, blinking at the unusual crowd. The chief was the only one of the elders to recognise them as harmless, since the others had never seen a cat. My doughty crew was soon swept up by loving arms and such cooing and gushing went on as the kittens had never heard. I invited the party down below decks to give them a clearer picture of my boat. Nine people make a cabin full on a 29-footer, but it was pleasant to hear voices in the little house that so long had been silent except for my voice talking to myself. I was satisfied merely to sit and listen to their appraisal of the fixtures, the portholes, the tools, the lantern, the mattress, my library, and the primer stove. I took the stove down, pumped it up, and fired it for them, and let them feel its fierce blaze, anything to keep them talking. When the young woman evinced interest in the milk cans, I offered her the empty one, and she was pleased. One of the boys scrambled out of the cabin into the outrigger and returned with a huge black fish which he plopped on the deck for me. The old chief smiled magnanimously and told me there were more ashore. It was about this time I decided to get rid of much of the junk that for a long time had littered the cabin. First I cleaned out my clothes locker. To each of the men and boys I tossed a pair of khaki army pants and a shirt. I cleaned out my tool case of extras I could do without. I heaved three empty jeep cans into the outrigger. I dragged out the spare lumber from under my bunk and set the boys to passing it up on deck. I gave them half my fish hooks and flies. I could see the women were disappointed that I had not offered gifts in their direction. I fished in my sea bag and brought out several tablecloths my grandmother had crocheted for Mary. I explained to the ladies that they would make good dresses. I gave them my signal flags which I had never used for the same purpose. I gave them two of my four sail needles and a roll of twine, and I handed each an offering from the cosmetics case I had bought for Mary, but, as sane women should be, they were much more appreciative of the half-dozen jars with lids I gave them. To the kids, I dished out my magazines, comic books, and the jigsaw puzzle. They took my house-cleaning as a show of generosity, and a greater cordiality grew up. They became willing to talk about their life ashore. They caught their water, they explained, from rainfall off their roofs or trapped it from streamlets of the crater. They lived on taro, mangoes and breadfruit from the interior of the island. They also domesticated pigs and chickens and caught sea life in the lagoon. I visualised the ordinariness of the life they must lead ashore with only a patch of land under them surrounded by a monotonous sea. Under safe circumstances, I would have gone ashore as they invited and, despite my haste to be underway, have relaxed for a day in their miniature village. But the holding power of the quickly shoaling bottom was precarious and Pagan was wantonly exposed to any shift in the weather. I pointed these things out to the group. One of the tall, silent young men volunteered to stay aboard to guard against contingency. It was out of the question. It was the same as expecting me to be efficient with the intricate outrigger. The afternoon was wearing on, the sun was well down toward the horizon, and I told the chief that I would soon be casting off. At a command from him, the outrigger, under the hand of one of the husky young men and the boys, shot over the reef and glided across the coral lagoon to the beach. In a little while it returned, lightering some water, pawpaws, breadfruit, tarl, about fifty drinking coconuts, and two small pegs and two chickens. I was overwhelmed at the generosity of an island that could ill afford to give much. 
My gifts, which I could easily afford, looked paltry in comparison. I put the chickens under my bunk for the time being and turned the squealing pigs loose in the cabin. They promptly jumped all over everything. In a last-minute burst of generosity, I tossed some line, some pots and pans, a can of nails and screws, an American flag and a pair of shoes into the outrigger. These things were received happily enough, but somehow there wasn't the spontaneous reception as at first. The children especially looked at me longingly as I prepared to go, and when Flotsam and Jetsam, with paws on the rail, peered innocently and wide-eyed upon them, they melted with wistfulness and no longer concealed their desire. Then I realised, and it hurt to think of it. I couldn't imagine Pagan without the kittens. They were more than a part of my boat, they were part of my life. But still, these people had precious little. I handed them into the outrigger, into the happy arms of the little girl. I felt it would be cruel to deny these lonely people the company the kittens and their future generations could bring. The time had come to go, and I must admit it weighed heavily. I knew I would soon be missing the voices, the laughter and the warm company. It was cruel to force myself to return to the fight with the sea when here was a cool desert isle where I could put in for a rest. How many clerks, lost in a maze of office files, office routines and the littleness of an office desk, would have welcomed my opportunity. The serious business of leave-taking prodded me. The sun was half under the sea. I offered my hand around the sombre circle and patted the young heads with whom I had established a close rapport. The old man clung to my hand, the sagging muscles of his face quivered as he passed on last-minute advice about the weather, the set of the current, and islands to westward. The young men looked wistful, and I am sure that if they had been a little more bold, they would have asked to go along. Flotsam and Jetsam found a fish in the bottom of the outrigger, and they didn't see my preparations to go. The last of the islanders stepped off the decks by aid of the shrouds and settled themselves into their loaded craft. I put my tiller over a lee, shook the anchor loose, waded up on the hawse and grappled it aboard. The mainsail fluttered up the mast, all sails bent to their work and in a few minutes my offing was made. I turned to wave a last goodbye to my friends and my kittens. The outrigger hadn't moved. The islanders were standing and answering my wave. Then growing dusk closed them in and took them away. The distance blotted out their farewell calls. The next morning, I wakened in a calm, the first I'd experienced since leaving the Galapagos, more than a month before. A little bit after daylight, curtains of water driven by the high winds closed around me. At first I thought it was only a series of squalls, but by noon I was heaved to under storm sail in a gale of wind down to the south, all in one day. I spent the day in my bunk, gnawing pork joints, since I had subjected one of my piglets to his purpose the night before. That night the gooseneck broke, and I went into the storm to wire the boom to the mast. By midnight the wind moved around to the south of east and modified. I set all sail, lashed the tiller, and made a course south of west. After leaving Caroline Island, I had a run of foul weather, very like some of that I encountered on my way to the Galapagos. Always there was early morning squalls. There were occasional short calms. The wind shifted often and varied in strength. Cloud banks were heavier, wetter and closer to the sea. The weather was depressing. I had hoped to be making top speed over this area, 
Instead, my daily runs were lagging. I got lonesome without the kittens. I missed them snuggling in my lap while the weather deviled me. I missed their daylight capers, and when I ate the flying fish, the taste wasn't the same as when the kittens ate with me. I tried to tame the chickens, but they were disinclined to be tamed, so I ate them. The one remaining pig squealed every time I offered friendship, so he too got the pot. There was now only stowaway and I aboard, and he was still a confirmed crank. Old Death and his boys were round, but as always the simple things of life didn't concern them. They were concerned only with making a kill and gobbling it. Life on Pagan had lost the thrill of the days of Gorky and Flotsam and Jetsam. With the supplies I'd picked up at Caroline, I looked forward with relief to the last month of the trip. Five days out from Caroline, I was still gnawing pork bones and eating loads of fresh fruits and vegetables. I wanted to fatten on these perishables before my two meals a day ration set in, and it was a good thing I took every available bite as I did. For even at that moment, I was on the brink of the most climactic and near-disastrous event of the trip. The next day was Thursday, September 5th, 1946. I shall never forget that day. It started like any other in this area. I woke up in the daylight to find a mild southerly breeze. In the neighbourhood were four squalls and I sat at the tiller, riding between them. By the time the sun was an hour high, I had run off before the slanting wet curtains and was reaching for the clear sky beyond and a good day's sail. I was expecting to fetch land any minute in the Suvorov Islands, I had no intention of stopping, I merely wanted to bounce off them as a check on my navigation. I scaled the mast a time or two, and looked toward where the reefy group should break the horizon. At nine o'clock the wind pulled, and soon I was slatting in sticky air. Almost immediately a slight swell set in, of all places the north. I noted this most critically, and attempted to reason out the oddity. I didn't like the implications. They pointed to a wind somewhere in the north. The weather of the past week came back to me. I glanced over my charts, my sailing directions, my information on storms. I knew what a northerly meant in these waters, but I didn't mention it to myself. By noon, great glassy swells were crowding upon each other, still out of the north. Pagan was broaching too in their troughs, galley utensils clinking and clanking. The boom pounded where it was lashed, the blocks creaked and rattled. The sky was censoring itself with a deep, grey mantle. Pagan's unsettled groanings seemed wasted on the immensity of the outer stillness and monotony. By three in the afternoon it had grown darker, and it seemed stiller. The heavy swells were gathering speed. They were larger, closer together, more purposeful. Off to the north an audible soughing whispered along the horizon. Pagan's sails, except her staysail, were in. She was stripped to her standing rigging, looking nude as she rolled on that indifferent sea. I lashed the boom double secure to its crutch, cinched the halyards down, and cleared the decks. I battened all ports and hatch dogs, I nailed the force scuttle to its combings with heavy spikes, a precaution against deep seas boarding my decks. Down below all was shipshape, gear was stowed and lashed, lockers were packed tight and strapped down. A life jacket was on my bunk, and from the bunk's edge dangled a number of short lines to lash myself down when the need came. On deck, I sat atop the cabin and waited, searching the horizon, the water, and the sky. Chapter 16 Hurricane Cat spores dappled the round crests of the hurrying rollers as a light air whisked out of the north. 
The breeze was strong enough to steady the staysail. It had a dampness that hinted at rain, and it stirred a heavy cloud to motion, which soon proved to be a squall. It came on, closed over me, and wrapped me round with wind and rain. I stayed on deck despite the wet. Inwardly, I felt apprehensive, and I couldn't go below. In a way, I was wishing I had a barometer so I could have some proof of what was afoot. As it was, I was now suspecting that I had been stalked by a hurricane. But at what rate, or from what precise direction, I couldn't know. Only a barometer could tell me. The area north of the Cook Islands, where I was, has a notorious reputation for cyclonic disturbances. If there was a hurricane in the locality, there was nothing I could do now but sit tight. I couldn't counter it. I was glad I had no barometer. Knowledge of a falling glass would only have verified a foregone conclusion. As it was, I could sit minimising the unmistakable symptoms and hope to the very last that my fears were ungrounded. My hands were tied. There was nothing I could do to avoid whatever it was that caused the northerly swells. Conditions of the sea and weather were not such that I could move profitably under sail and I didn't want to be caught with my sails up, so I doused them, put them in stops, and watched and listened, denying every ominous sign. I was soon encountering a series of nasty squalls, lowering skies and a hurrying of seas. Hours later, still nothing definite could be read in the skies, and I was forced to wait. I strained at every nerve to know what was coming. I read from every shift of wind, every lessening of distance between the seas, I recalled everything I knew, little though it was, of hurricanes and their peculiarities. A hurricane is greatly like the little whirlwind which dances along the street on a summer day, only it is infinitely larger. Its small round centre is an area of low barometric pressure and calm air. The outer reaches of the disturbance have a high barometric pressure. As the barometer falls, you know you are nearing the eye or centre of the storm. Working from the outside of the hurricane in a circular motion are prodigious winds, which intensify right up to the edge of the calm inner area. The whole system of terrific winds and calm central sector is usually little more than 300 miles across. The duration of a hurricane depends upon the speed it travels, anywhere from 5 to 30 miles an hour. A striking peculiarity of this hurricane is that in the northern latitudes its winds are counterclockwise, and in southern latitudes, they are clockwise. Also, the portion of a hurricane nearest the equator is generally its least violent part, the portion furthest from the equator being especially dangerous because cyclonic tracks tend away from the equator and thus advance across anything in its way. The thing to avoid is the center. If you face the wind in southern seas, the center is on your left. The dangerous semicircle would depend on the path of the storm centre. By evening, the last of the squalls had passed and the worst of my fears took shape. Rain poured heavily from the jagged, lowering clouds and a mild gale-force wind set in, whipping the seas so that they charged down around me. It was no guesswork about the hurricane. I was certain that I had one right in my lap. I took my anchor below and lashed it to the mast and made a last check of all gear to see that the precautions I had made against the storm were in readiness. I unlashed the rubber raft from the mast, pushed it off the foredeck and strung it from the stern, just in case. 
Grey, tooth-edged clouds raced past barely above the mast top. They unburdened themselves of torrents of stinging water. The wind had steadied in the north, and the fact that it hadn't changed direction in an hour disturbed me. I rigged my storm sail on the mast, sheeted it flat, and crammed the staysail below. My last move was to cinch the tiller down doubly secure. I went forward, seated myself on the deckhouse, and with arm locked about the mast, watched over the bows for what was coming. Night closed in, and heavy rollers growing a flashing grey were the only indication that the night was anything else but wind and rain. I went below to lie in my bunk, stare at the overhead, and wait. At an hour later, Pagan commenced dancing nervously. Instead of rising gently to the oncoming crests, she broke abruptly into them. Instead of a quick roll, before the more forceful seas, she made a sharp lurch which found her often heeled over far enough to throw me. In my bunk, I was forced to grip its sides. It was obvious I was in the centre of the gale winds which lie just outside the perimeter of the oncoming hurricane winds. After a while, more occasional strains shivered the boat when the storm sail cringed before the wind. The brewing hurricane was slamming with ever greater intensity. I checked the watch and saw it was just before eight. That was the last time I looked at the watch. From then on, there was too much excitement, too much violent motion. Opening the hatch doors, I peeped into the garrulous night. Hissing rollers worked with a heavy swish beneath my boat and ran growling into the blackness. The wind pursued them and with the persistence of a bully. Pagan lay as though still, now on a hillock, now in a ravine of water, as yet not pitching, but rolling mightily. She was no longer riding comfortably. Her bow was lying five points off the wind, which still persisted from the north. The port rail was under, and the windward bow was throwing spray high into the rigging and beating into the seas. Rain was the heaviest yet. It was impossible to look straight into that wind and rain. With the wind holding for so long from one direction, I was certain that the track of the hurricane lay directly over me. I could figure my three phases of behaviour from it. The first, the infernal winds of its dangerous semicircle. The second, the lull of the hurricane centre, where winds from a dozen directions send great rollers crashing into a small, crowded arena. The third, and least vicious, the navigable semicircle, or tail end of the storm. Seeing that all was well, as could be expected on deck, I pulled my eyes in and closed the hatch. I braced myself against the low overhead and flashed my light over the airless interior. For the first time I lashed myself in my bunk and waited. Two hours later, Pagan was slapped by severe bursts of wind and sea that rattled her like sudden earthquakes. I was sure now that I was entering the first of the hurricane winds. At a hidden hour, sometime later, Pagan heeled mightily, yawed and pounded. I loosed the hitches across my chest and legs and peered into the thick weather. The storm sail had failed to hold its own in the high winds and had blown to loose ends. It meant going on deck again. I set my sea anchor, a homemade job rigged coming over from the Galapagos, and veered it out a hundred feet of line. Pagan rounded up successfully, though she was taking heavy, noisy water over her gunnels. Below decks I lay lashed in my bunk once more, listening to every creak and groan that shot past the hollow din of shrieking rigging and rumbling seas. I could hear the churning water surging over the decks. When the heavier gusts struck, I listened deepest. I was alert for any structural defects, 
I had learned to know my boat by the very feel and sound of her. After sleeping for more than two months with my ears tuned to her every murmur, I knew what each sound meant and from where it came. My great concern was for Pagan's 26-year-old, aging, tired timbers. It was hard to believe as I lay there, that night, listening to the inside sounds of a small craft under extreme stress, that the planks surrounding me had been spreading waters for those years. But Pagan, for all her age, was a well-found boat. Alone about two in the morning, I heard a quivering shriek, the loose ends of a snapped shroud. It whined like something wounded. I opened the hatch and peered out. Giant, wind-whipped seas surged to port and starboard. The wind, growing harsh and harsher, had the force of solidity. Pagan was falling away laboriously. Her mast was describing a widening arc. She heeled to such an angle under the heavier gusts that the mast nearly lopped off the wave crests. She pointed in a fast glide down the back of a moving mountain. She plunged bow on into the base of the next, submerging the forepeak and quaking under the load of tons of green water. Pitching her bow out of the water to the keel, she sent a rivulet rail deep cascading along the deck and pouring over the stern. In the deep trough formed by the hills of sea, the wind was unable to strike and Pagan righted abruptly. As she neared the curled peak at the climb on the oncoming roller, she once more encountered the blast. She careened before it. I couldn't stand. Two, she was struck by the thundering wind-driven coma which broke in a heavy continuum atop each hurricane swell. It was then that Pagan pounded most. Her bow was pitched up as though dynamited, and she yawed wildly until heavy seas, boarding her, weighted her down so that she wallowed clumsily, her lee rail out of sight. Then she would shake herself free of her load and go reeling back down the side of the next great rolling swell of water. The broken shroud, the forward one on the starboard side, was flailing like a whiplash. It cried the danger to my 35-foot mast, jolting at the storm blackness with only one shroud holding it on the starboard side. The wind snatched my close-fitting watch cap from around my ears and threw it into the venting clouds. In a second I was drenched to the shoulders by flying spray. I stared into that disjointed sea and saw instantly the uselessness of my life jacket. I stripped it off. Before jumping on deck, I bound a heavy line around my middle and made it fast to the handrail on the deck house. I waited a moment when the decks were water-free and leaped out of the hatchway, closed it, jumped into the windward waist and lay flat, facing up deck. The prying fingers of the wind caught the loose folds of my shirt, filling it at the front tearing away the buttons and ripping it down the back and sides. It hung by tatters. My full strength was required to lie flat on deck. I didn't dare stand into that wind or even sit. When I looked into it for a second, I could feel my eyes depress. I could feel my hair whip against my cheeks. I had strung a lifeline above the rails, from the bow to the shrouds and to the stern post. Two more lifelines lay strung on deck from the forward bit along each waist to the rudder post. These latter lines had double knots tied in each two feet, and to these I clung each time a swirling sea charged along the deck. I pulled myself ahead a few feet and locked myself, feet and hands around the knotted line. When the decks spilled themselves of eddying water, and when for a moment I could expose myself, I freed my waistline on the handrail, moved it forward a length, and slid up under it. Movement was slow. It had to be. Thus, I worked my way to the starboard shrouds, 
to examine the damaged member. I found that the turnbuckle on the after shroud had loosened. The shocks of the mast, reeling in a wide arc, had been absorbed by the forward, weaker shroud, weakened in the encounter with the devilfish, and it had parted. The mast was held only by the one shroud, and it wasn't tight as it should have been, since the turnbuckle had unscrewed. The load on it was terrific. It couldn't sustain that tremendous load for long. Each time Pagan pitched her heel clear of the water and twisted over into a flat beam roll, the mast looked as if it would jump out of its stepping. I could feel the timbers in the deck beneath me crawl. I tightened the turnbuckle as well as I could by hand, but it wasn't enough. The single shroud couldn't hold out alone. There was only one desperate move I could make to save the mast. Loosen the forestay at the stemhead and bend it to the chain plate as a jury shroud. As the next heavy sea went crashing round my shoulders and over me, I made ready to loosen my body line and fasten it a few feet ahead so that I could snake my way to the bow. I moved slowly and carefully across the open deck. Between seas I shifted my line from one secure fastening to another, and more than once, but for the line, reaching green waters would have snatched me over the stern. Scrambling from the mast across the forescuttle to the bit was a risky business. It was then that I was clinging only to the deck lines, having nothing to which to attach my waistline. I watched the seas overspilling the rails and timed the intervals, then jumped. I made it. The seas growled unhappily and continued to be unhappy, sniping at me as I worked. I loosened the forestay as quickly as possible and, gripping it fiercely, slithered back to the shrouds. I lay on my back on the blown decks, working with only my hands and forearms in the wind. I took my time, thought carefully over each job before I did it. When I finished, Pagan was bolstered by full shrouds and I was eased of mind. The decks, a heave and a wash, didn't seem so bad with the mast safely held. The job completed, I made the gross error of sighting up to check it. An explosive wind bent me to a helpless angle. A flurry of bubbling water lifted me bodily and bounced me against the deckhouse and into the shrouds, then whelmed me over the rail into a churning sea. The line was around my waist, fortunately. The pull of the sea spun me upside down, wrenched at me and tore. Pagan submerged her rail and I found myself clawing in a surging froth, closing my throat against the water. I was hard against the hull, being slammed against it, one minute underwater and one minute not. A heavy sea dropped down on Pagan too perpendicularly to be climbed. I saw it curl over, towering before me. Pagan had just heeled obliquely, throwing her windward rail high. I was yanked from the water, and had it been possible to stand in the wind, I could have walked down the hull. Above me I could see the curling lip of descending water. My tiny craft, caught between sea and wind, sank bodily beneath the impact on her decks. I was glad I wasn't on the open deck as the flood engulfed the bow and rolled heavily against the bulkheads. Another drink of salt was choked down by me as the boat was dragged by main force before the ungovernable sea. My arms and legs were thrown at will. She sidled and broached about as though she would wallow and founder. The high strain of fighting back had pared my strength away in a few short minutes. I was choked with water in lungs and stomach and flopping against the hull had set my head to spinning. I was giving it up, I knew it, but I couldn't resist longer. The thing was I didn't want to resist longer. I could see Pagan close by and I could see the grey loom of seas, but I couldn't reach toward one or lean away from the other. I relaxed. I became part of the sea. I could hear the singing siren.
Pagan's white hull was only a foot or two away, looking like a high wall. I wanted to touch it and climb over it. I closed my eyes, wondering what would happen next. A dollop of seas whirled broadside onto Pagan. I struck the rail and floated against it. The deck tilted steeply. I slipped somehow inboard and brought up against the deckhouse. Pagan came out of the hollow between the seas cringing before the winds. I knew immediately that I was safe on board. I remember vomiting the water I had swallowed and tugging faintly at the hard wet knot on the handrail. The next thing I knew I had toppled through the hatchway, had somehow closed it and had tumbled in a heap on the cabin floor. I was too sick and weak to care what happened next. For long hours I rolled to and fro on the floor, knocking against the bunks as Pagan tilted high. Finally, I crawled into my bunk and bound my lashings over me. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to SpartanOceanRacing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.